Good evening, everybody. Please welcome to the stage Julian Temple and Norman Cook. You go there and there, I'll go on the end. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, we've got about 30 minutes, so what I'll do is I'll talk to uh, Julian and Norman for about 15 minutes, and then would you, are you happy to take questions from the audience? Sure thing. Yeah? Yeah. Would you like to do questions? Because otherwise I will literally talk for half an hour. <laughs> okay, so just to be clear, would you like to do questions? Yeah. yeah. Should we try that again? Would you like to do <laughs> questions? Yeah. Great, fine, brilliant. So, Julian, congratulations on the film. Um, tell us how this came about, because I've known you for many years, and you weren't, until fairly recently, a dance music uh, specialist. No, there's a first time for everything, though. Um, <laughs> Malcolm Geary, who is in the audience somewhere here, um, I think came up with the idea of putting me together with the island, the magical island of Ibiza. Yeah. And um, I have to confess, I wasn't, you know, totally clear that it was a film that I could do. I'd done films about Detroit and Rio and London, my town. Uh, so I'm interested in films about places, but um, I wasn't quite sure. And I, I, I had a kind of get-out clause. Let's do a silent movie about Abetha, because um, silent movies kind of made sense to me because it's a film of, you know, it's an island of sound in people's heads. But silent movies were always about sound. Yeah, you know? silent um, cinema was never silent. And my, I was saying earlier, my grandfather ran a whole bunch of silent movie orchestras in the west of England until like 1931, and suddenly overnight he went bankrupt because <laughs> <laughs> his empire from Bristol to Penzance went away, you know, uh, overnight. So silent movies are obviously in my psyche, in my soul, um, and there are some of the most beautiful movies ever made are silent yeah, movies. Absolutely. But this was like, okay, well, let's try and do a silent movie about Ibiza because to me, the music can take over. Um, you know, one of the frustrating things to me in a mix as a, as a film director is you've got to dip, dip all the sounds, everything, whether it's the sound effects, the music, the wind, and the rain, and the, you know, the cigarette. All that's got to go down when you have someone speak. Yeah. And, and this is, was, uh, I didn't really understand the power of that when I said silent movie, but I love the fact that we've been able to make a thing where the music in the mix and the effects can swirl. I don't know whether it worked in this cinema actually, but um, you, you know, in a 7.2 mix, yeah. the thing of just creating a maelstrom of sound and magic of cicadas and raindrops and big beats and well, you don't have to worry about horrible human beings speaking all the way through the movie. <laughs> it's quite good, you know. So anyway, that's how it happened. And you, was Norman your sort of guide to the, to the music? Is that how that worked? Well, I, you know, I'd always had a kind of uh, fondness for house music. And, you know, I like soul and um, yeah. emotion. And, uh, and you first came to everyone's attention making things like Rock and Roll Swindle, which was about punk, and you've made documentaries about 
Dr. Fielgen, Wilco Johnson. Yeah. But this is a department. No, different. Yeah. But any good music is good music. I mean, I respond to good music, and, and I didn't know this music. I, I, I needed a fantastic guide, and I got a fantastic guide in, in Norman, who is, you know, straddles those worlds in a way. He is Mr. Ibiza, but he's also Mr. Glastonbury, and, you know, there were lots of things we connected to. And without Norman, I couldn't have made this film. Norman, tell us about your experience with it. This is your first full feature soundtrack, yeah. Yeah, I've, never, I've always loved the way that, that music can work in tandem with films. I, I love films, but I really love films where the, the soundtrack becomes part of the narrative. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of always, this has always been my, kind of one of my, uh, my, my, on my bucket list to get properly involved. And I've sort of done other things. I, I did a track in Moulin Rouge and I've done, I've sort of dabbled, but no one's made an honest man of me yet. <laughs> um, but the, the, when, when Julian came, came to me with it, I, I just said right, right away, I'm your man for your job because I know Ibiza, I know, but also I've followed Julian's career and, and been a fan. And, and I think the way, we, the way he makes films is very similar to the way I, I make music, which is to take kind of found bits and then mingle them in with new bits. And it's a kind of sort of collage way of telling stories. And so for me to be, to be allowed to be that more directly involved in the whole storytelling process was, uh, was a, a thrill to me. But one that I felt I came into it with enough to give because I've been DJing and, and, and living on the island for 30 years. How? Living there for... When, you, when uh, Julian came to you with the project, did you know much of it? Because I have to say, I watched an awful lot of this thinking, firstly, because there's a thing at the beginning that says, be very careful, there are stories about Ibiza, many of which are lies. And then you see this astonishing collision of stories, and of course it's the most astonishing stuff turns out to be true. You've been connected with Ibiza for a long time. How much of what's in that movie did you know? I only knew the stuff that happened in the last 30 years. When I, since I've been going there, I didn't know any of the history. And in a way, again, that's what attracted me to it. When as soon as I found out it wasn't going to be, uh, there wasn't going to be dialogue in it, it's like, oh, fantastic! I don't have to listen to those hoary old stories. <laughs> DJs banging on about Alfredo, and, and so because that story has been told many, many times before. But this was this was stories that no one's ever told or no one's ever bothered to research. I mean, you know, from the, the, Bez, the Bez bombshell that, that Ibiza was, was named after the Phoenician god of dance. <laughs> and that um, is, that is the, that's true yeah. of all the things that are untrue in the film. The fact that <laughs> Ibiza is Bez Island is actually true. Yeah. Well, it's good that, the, you know, the, the best thing is true and, and the rest is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Who who was there when Bez first found out that that was the case? I was on the phone to him. What did he say? So I'm there, mate. <laughs> I said, you've got to leave your trainers on. He was saying, I've got to take the trainers off. I know, I know. <laughs> so when you... It's not all true. So that kind of... I mean, what's brilliant is we get this whole mythology of Ibiza starting from, you know, the creation of the island and the, and the, you know, the gods and all the rest of it. And, I mean, none of which I knew about at all. But what you do throughout the film is find very strange connections, not least that idea that somehow there is some historical past to Ibiza being an island of dance and of, you know, rave culture or, or whatever. Did, did, you, did you know that was there when you started the film? Or did you find it whilst researching the film? I think we all found it out in making the film, yeah. I, I had no idea that Dada guys went there before... Um, 
you know, the beginning of the way we see Ibiza now, which is, you know, a, you know 20th century history from the Dada guys who had to flee Hitler. Yeah. And they had to find the remotest, most difficult to find place in the island, in the continent of Europe, is this island floating off the Mediterranean, you know, off the coast of Spain. Um, they saw it as amazingly not the ruins of an ancient world, but a living, preserved place where the ancient world was still going from the Phoenicians and the Greeks, uninterrupted. Because yeah. Spain, you know, had, had abandoned that island. The island was the poorest place in Europe, as much as, you know, Sarajevo or other really poor parts of Europe. And that journey from the poorest place of Europe to one of the richest places in, in 50 years is an incredible part of the journey that I think, you know, that, that people who go there and have a great time there should understand the, the kind of history of, of, of where the place they're in comes from. But also from your point of view, the strange thing of, you know, the, the Orson Welles connection, the FFA connection, the Sid Vicious connection, which you couldn't possibly have made up because obviously that's, you know, footage that... You never know. <coughs> Maybe Sid never went there. I don't know. No, he did. You know, I knew that. That was part of our family history, like secret history of the sex whistles. But and and, and Dada being, you know, something that's in the roots of punk. I mean, it did yeah, seem yeah. like this story was something that you have been tied to, albeit unknowingly, for years. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I, I just felt this island has such magic that you have to understand where that came from. There are layers and layers of <coughs> different influences that have made the island as attractive, it, you know, a place that it is. Yeah. It is a rebel island. It's a magical island. But it's also under threat from being so successful that it could kill itself, you know. I think the, um, the, the great mark of any documentary is if it can manage to make somebody who doesn't know about a subject and isn't particularly interested in that subject know about it and interested in it. Norman, I'm, what I know about dance music wouldn't fill the back of a postage stamp, but I did feel that I actually understood the, uh, the scene to some extent. And I'm sure that that's 90% of that is to do with the fact that the music is chosen in a way that led me through the journey of, you know, of, of the honor. How complicated was it to make that Soundtrack. So, because I mean, obviously, if you're somebody who knows about dance music, I'm sure it's brilliant. But the, the triumph for me is leading a total outsider like me through it, and it working. I think. I think for me, the 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 dance, the more kind of like house dance elements, they were the easy bit because they were the bit I knew inside out. It was it was trying to shoehorn that into um, other areas. And um, I mean, Julian originally. The brief was that we made a, a film that we, that you could dance to all the way through, and that's probably one thing that I've definitely failed on in my, in my task. <laughs> because as a DJ, you want to keep the beat going, you want to segue everything in and make it a smooth, continuous mix. And the story twists and turns in too many ways yeah. to have kept it on that level. So, I think maybe, probably the uh, I did quite a lot of reduxing of, of tunes, saying to Julian, that tune, you know, that's never actually, there was, you know, there's tunes that, that mention Ibiza, and it's like, yeah, but that's never, that tune's never been played in Ibiza. So trying to get a sort of historical reference to it. But I think probably the reason that it made sense was because the whole story had been leading up to that moment, that the people had been dancing leading up to, to this for the, since the Phoenicians, 
And so it just seemed obvious that that, was we, that would be where we ended up. What about the fact that, you know, you said a, a movie you can dance to, with, I think, with, with, you know, for certain sections. The film's going to premiere at Glastonbury in this extraordinary circumstance. With, well, describe what the Glastonbury screening is going to be like, Julian. Well, it's the only drive-in movie in the UK, um, which could only happen in Glastonbury because no one is scared of the weather there. Um, <laughs> it can rain, it can shine, and it will still go on. And actually, in Glastonbury, if you're in these old... Cineramageddon is the biggest screen in Europe. You've got, you know, 100 um, mutated classic American cars, ancient English cars, you know... You've got... The, the, the projector is a jet fighter with the, the beam of the film coming out of the nose of the jet fighter. So it's a strange place. Um, <laughs> but a great place to um, celebrate movies within the Glastonbury Festival. And um, Norman's going to play a set afterwards. It's going to be a happening night. And everyone's going to be... It, the, I mean, the completing the picture, it is going to be a silent screening because everyone's going to be listening it's on... It's a headphones. silent movie, a silent screening. There'll be an eerie silence. But inside their headsets and their brains, they'll be going crazy <clears> to <throat> the loudest um, silent movie ever made. Norman, You'll be recording a wild track, because yes. if anyone who's listened to silent discos knows that people sing along. So I'd love to hear the, the collective <laughs> noise, audience noise. <laughs> but do you, th Norman, do you think that, the, I mean, I think that one of the things that the film captures is because it ties in, you know, dance culture in, you know, to, to ancient culture, there is, and I'm not speaking from experience, there is a sense of um, those things as being like a trance, like, you know, out-of-body kind of, you know, celebratory. And I do think that the film captures that. And I think that is something which is inherent in festivals. And there is a weird connection between Glastonbury on the one hand and Ibiza on the other. I mean, you're rooted in both of them. Mm. Although they're very, very different, there is some kind of... There's something, there's something very... I mean, there's something very primal about that disco beat that we all dance to. It's kind of... It's the rhythm of like sex or uh, community or rebellion. And it is, it's that driving beat that's been with us all the way through history. And that with a little bit of magic, rumours of ley lines happen in, in Glastonbury as well as Ibiza. So yeah, I mean, a little, like the greatest stories, there's a little bit of magic. But, but I think, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the people, we've been dancing to that rhythm in, in various forms you know, for a long, long time way before Glastonbury. Well, there's something spiritual about celebrating being alive with other people, and both Glastonbury and Ibiza do that. They bring people together to feel good about being alive. You know? But the film also strikes a cautionary note about what's happening or happened in Ibiza. And do you think... I mean, we end with this actually quite, uh, you know, passionate plea that we, we have to take more responsibility for what's going on. Do you feel positive about the future of the island? Yeah, I do. I think there's enough people who care enough about why that island is, is special uh, to um, guarantee that it has a, a future still connected with what it is, rather than abandoning its soul and its, its deep history. I mean, I think anywhere, whether you live in Bath or you live in, you know, Prague, 
if you're bombed by tourism, you're in, you're, you, you have a problem with your preserving your culture. And I think that's a problem increasingly for the whole world. You know, the, the huge demonstrations in Barcelona last year. Yeah. Where they were saying, we don't want to lose being Barcelona. Um, are the beginning of something really strong that tourism can destroy. If it's not respectful <coughs> enough to why it's going to a place, it can destroy the reason it's going there. So the whole thing moves somewhere else. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a very important theme for the 21st century, that we don't abuse other parts of the world with mindless tourism or, or tourism that doesn't uh, have any sense of why it's there and the history of the place. You know, it needs more respect. Norman, are we at the end of a cycle or in the middle of a cycle? How is, where, where are we with it? I think history will recall we're in the middle of the VIP period. I love the, 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 VIP the, way the, 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 the sound when you say the VIP with literally dripping bitterness. What, what does that I've, mean, the VIP? Well, bit? I've, I've been DJ on the island for 30 years, and when I went there, it was, there was it, half the reason the, the, the beating heart of it was, was, was tourists who came because it was a cheap, yeah. it, it was a cheap thing, and, and they're being priced out. And that's from my, you know, aside from wider historical thing or the ecological issues just from my point of view it's kind of killing the island the vip culture and it's and it's you know most of the people who went there were just went there for the love and the escapism and the freedom and there's a lot of people there who are just about money and that ruins you know that always sours everything so yeah i'm quite passionate about that um i mean i think i think it's incredibly brave of of julian to to especially to end the film with such a kind of passionate yeah. thing, because it's something that anyone like me would never, it would kind of, it's the sort of the elephant in the room that we would never address. But I think Julian has sort of seen it with an outsider's point of view and said, actually, you know, what, what's going on, it's not just about VIP tables. It's actually, a, you know, ecologically, you are chipping away at this island and, and it's, there's only so far you can go. But um, I do believe that if it, if it does all go tits with the, if the, the, the bubble bursts on the VIP culture, Ibiza will reinvent itself, and then we'll have to add an extra scene at the end, and I hope. <laughs> Has the film... To be continued. Have you, you, you've played it in Ibiza, right? You have had a screening there. Well, Malcolm and um, other people were there at a screening, yeah. Um, maybe we should open it up to the... Yeah, sure. So, Malcolm, yeah. Since, since, just before we take over, Malcolm, are you here? I am. How did it go in Ibiza? I've been going there since... Uh, we, we were involved with the Freddie Mercury Barcelona shoot with Montserrat Caballé uh, about 35 years ago and fell in love with the island. And I've, like Norman, I've seen the changes. You know, we used to go and have parties in the woods and on the beaches, and none of that's allowed anymore. Um, open, air, open air discos till the, the, the wee small hours, and the government insisted you put a roof on the clubs. So there have been some radical changes. Um, but like Norman, I've got hope for the island. And this tiny little rock in the middle of the Mediterranean has such an amazing influence, not just on music, but on pop culture, that it was a story that needed to be told. And I, I'm, I'm delighted that, you know, Julian and Norman have done such a brilliant job. So Great. very happy. Thank you. There was a question there. Can we just run a microphone down? The microphones now seem to be working. Yeah. It's a very complex film. And I'm just interested if you can tell us a bit more about the construction of it. How much of it been designed before shooting? How much of it during the shoot, editing? 
post-production. Julian. Uh, yeah, um, most of it, well, none of it beforehand, really. I think, you know, I think it's good not to have a plan. I think it is, to, you know, the point is to uh, try and be as um, innocent of what you're getting into before you get in there and so that the film comes out of the experience of making it rather than thinking about it before. Um, the editing is a huge part of it. My editing partner, Caroline Richards, is here, and um, we spent many, many long weeks and, and nights um, editing the film, which is where it comes from, is the edit, you know. Um, you know, you, you have to have a, a kind of sense, but, uh, you know, the idea that you don't know so much about a place and you're learning as you make the film is an incredible energy. If you felt you knew everything before, it would be boring to do it, you know. So it's a journey, and, and I, I hope, uh, like, I think every good film learns about itself as it happens. It's not pre-planned, as Hollywood would like us to, to make it in a perfect world. I, I don't think that's the way great films are made. Let's take another question there. It's a beautiful film, and what I wanted to know is exactly how you, um, obviously you, you put it together constructively and imaginatively as it was going along, I guess. And I, I just wondered, did, did you work on the final draft when you were doing the, the music, or were you, uh, did, the, did the music have to uh, adapt to the various edits that were going on? I, I just ways, wondered yeah. how that worked out. It was very, very adaptive. It was, it was a continuous pro process of, of having, having a scene with music on, then thinking, does that work? Then trying replacing it, and then some tunes we weren't allowed to have. So there was a, an awful and lot. Scenes of, would change, and the, you know, it was a two-way thing. Yeah, Julian, Julian changes his mind a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make it up. <laughs> Thank you. Great film, great music, and it's really great to hear it all kind of developing. Because the question that I didn't ask you the other day, Julian, when we were speaking for DJ oh, yes, Mag, yeah. Was he My Capitan. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Norman, man of DJ Mag at the moment. But, and everything, our sort of award of everything. But I was interested because I first wrote about the film with the open call to ravers to find out whether they'd got their own footage. And I was kind of wondering what the outcome of that was and how much of the film was from people who just donated their rushes. Yeah, because you did call out, you said, if you have footage of, uh, of Ibiza, we'd like to see it. That was, that was back in, like, 2016 almost, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we did the same thing on Glassbury, and I waited for two weeks thinking, this is a stupid idea. Nothing came through when I did a film about Glassbury. And then suddenly all these envelopes arrived, like padded envelopes with VHSs. <laughs> and uh, after four weeks, we were up to our neck in this garage of... <laughs> Envelopes, you know. Actually, the same thing didn't happen on Ibiza. I don't know why would that be. Uh, they... Two two things I would have suggested. One is they. <laughs> we we sat in this empty garage. One is uh, cam cameras didn't have phones on in those days, and nobody really would get it together to take a camera to, especially not a movie camera. They actually most of the clubs 
didn't encourage any kind of film. That, I think that that's true. Yeah, something yeah. to do with the freedom yeah. of ether. Yeah, no, it just wasn't encouraged. And also, uh, just on a technical point, light. It was really difficult to film in nightclubs before the cameras got so light sensitive. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's all true. But mainly, I mainly. Think, I think the people were doing like too naughty things filming to film. Is a good point. <laughs> <laughs> they still don't, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, take another question. Gentleman with a beard. Gentleman with a beard, down <laughs> the front row. Just a question with regard to the Glastonbury event, Norman. Is this the first time you've ever played at a silent disco? I have, no, I have played silent discos at Glastonbury before. So what's going to be different about this one? Uh, I think um, I will have sat through the film probably for the first time in seeing it in a kind of situation where it feels at home. And I think that would probably inspire me, uh, either to sort of reprise some of the tunes that worked in the film. So, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully I can fashion some kind of set. Bounce off that, it. Yeah, that bounces off the occasion of being there in the film, rather than just, you know, just doing my sort of general post-film set, which I've never done before. So, no, it's, yeah, I've, I've never done Silent Disco before, but I've never played to a load of people in abandoned, mutated cars in the middle <laughs> of the field in Somerset before. This, this, I'm sure this is a really naive question, but when you're, and forgive me for it, but when you're DJing, how planned is a set and how much is it actually responding to what's happening in the room? Generally, I know the first song I'm going to play and the last one and everything. And that's it? Yeah, yeah. everything else is, is I mean, there's sort of certain routes you follow, but it just depends on the, the mood of the crowd and, and, and the, the situation, the room. And, and also just on the journey you end up going with, with the people. So no, not, it's not rehearsed at all. Sounds like a good film edit. Yeah, because, well, you, but you do edit like that, don't you? I mean, you do, yeah, you've always had this thing about, because you said that when, because the, when you first got the, the gig to do this, Malcolm Geary was saying, because he'd seen uh, Requiem for Detroit, which is a very different film about a very different city. But you said that what you like is to feel immersed in somewhere, but also slightly scared. And that's something that you've taken all the way through your filmmaking, that whole sense of you are slightly flying without a parachute. Yeah, threatened by doing it uh, is a good starting point, I think. Because um, if you think you know anything about somewhere, you're, you're bullshitting yourself, you're faking it. Totally, you've got to learn it from... Um, like, you know, like from the point of knowing nothing. You've got, to, you've got to try and learn it, I think. Or, or you're, not, you're, not, you're not being honest. We've only got a couple of minutes left. What's your favourite sequence in the film? <laughs> um, I like those Romans going blind and the slaves going blind in the salt flats. That's epic. That's true Hollywood epic to me. And also you get to use film burning out, which is a lovely thing yeah. as well, because you've yeah, got, yeah. You, you like the tactility of... Yeah, the underground filmmaking thing, you know, it's great. <laughs> I have no idea what accent that was that you just did. It was just... Stan Brackage. Oh, OK, yeah, that's fine, that's what it's called. Norman, what's Mine your... Mine's exactly the same, actually. I think having driven past Salinas so many times and barely recognised that, yes, it's salt flats, and I think they make salt there, but not knowing the process, not knowing that they, the irrigation system has been there since Phoenician times, not knowing that salary came... It's called the White the... Island because of... Yeah, I didn't yeah. know any... So the idea that I've driven past this thing, every time you go to the airport, you drive past Salinas, and every time you land, you fly over it. Yeah, it had been under my nose the whole time, and then Julian tells me other stories about it, 
and then sets it to this epic Romans in there. And then the beauty of it is at the last minute, you just see this plane coming into land. I mean, for me, that sums up the whole film. Do you feel that you'll, pl if, you, if you play Ibiza again, having made that film, will you play it differently? I'm glad that uh, Malcolm said what he's just said about how it was received, because I was gonna, just going to check that I'd still be welcome on the island. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Matutas family might... I mean, there's a certain amount of bite in the hand that feeds you. No, um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I spent... I, was, uh, I always got spend my family holiday in Ibiza, and last summer I, we went and visited uh, um, the abandoned club, um, and I found myself... My eyes had been open to things that I, that I didn't know. So... It's more enjoying the island more, knowing more about it. Because you, it's easy to go there, have a, have a nice holiday by a pool or in a nightclub, and, and just not realise where you are. Now I think I appreciate it more than magic. Whether that translates into my DJ sets, I don't know. Because I do tend to just then work on instinct. Yeah. Um, but I definitely appreciate the island tenfold. And Julian, are you now, are you now part of that? Would you now go to a... Rave. Get some banging drops. No, I always go to a rave. Whether I go to a big kind of corporate club is another issue. I'm down for a rave on the Quantox on the weekend. Come on. Let's bring it on. You know, um, You're still a punk, aren't you? I am, really, yeah. <laughs> Better or for worse. <laughs> I'm born with it. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, they have another screening coming in here, so we need to bring this to a close. Thank you ever so much, everybody, for coming. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you. You're welcome.